So my question um, is a question that's been asked by others. I've given you. Do you have that on your thing? This this article on your on your laptop? Yeah. Okay. So um, the question that has been asked by others, and who have answered it, uh, depending on their intellectual position, is <clears throat> um, the the four sons. And the highlight of the Seder is the four sons, uh, the wicked, the wise, the simple, and the, uh, and the one who doesn't ask. Uh, actually, I would like to retranslate the words simple, wise. And, um, the Chochem is as it says. He's asking questions about the intricacies of the Korban Pesach, the sacrificial lamb. He's, ask, he's asking a question about Ein Maftirin Afikoman. What do you do with the Afikoman? And you, uh, the Rasha, I would like to suggest, is not wicked, but oppositional. And I'm going to develop that theme because we're told in Chasidut, especially, uh, that the four sons are not four separate sons, but they are four parts of our personalities as we integrate or integrate these ideas. <clears throat> so to me, the Chochem is the one who has information. The Rosha is the one who has information, but he's not making use of it to support the ideology. He's oppositional, meaning I have a, a set of data, and am I going to use that data to support ideology or not? Neil deGrasse is, talks about this a lot when he deals with creationists and uh, on the YouTubes, right? It's not, he doesn't have any problem with saying what it is if you want to believe, you know, in fairies and we're there. As long as you understand that you shouldn't be using Genesis 1 1 as an archaeological text, right? Just know what categories, right? So the Russia is saying, I get it, I, I understand the tradition. But what gives me the opposition is I don't need or I don't wish or I don't agree with making use of that set of data for a particular ideology. So let's just dive into the question. The question is, <clears throat> um, if we look at the four questions, they are based out of a mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, and the to they're based on, the on Torah passages. Uh, the Torah passages um, have to do with questions that the Torah says that your children will ask. Unfortunately, the Torah does not tell you who those children are. Chochem, Rosha, Tom, Shana Yishal. If we look at the very first one in Exodus 12, 27, you shall say it is a Pesach sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt when he attacked Egypt but spared our homes. That's what you shall answer when your children ask you, what is this right to you? Wait a minute. That's a quote from the Rasha. Mm -hmm. But in the Bible, it doesn't say he's a Rasha. In the Bible, it just says, and if your children ask you, what is this right to you? You should answer them. Where does it say it's a Russia? The second one. Um, Who's this chap here? Larry? He's a, a scholar, right? So, um, in the, uh, the, the, the second uh, interchange between generations is, 
13, Exodus 13, 8. And here it doesn't have to do with the Pesach offering, it has to do with the matzah and the sanctification of the firstborn. And there is no question. It just says the parent uh, explains to the child uh, what this service is. The third interchange is Exodus 13, 14. It will happen that your children will ask you in times to come, what is this? Oh, Mazos, that's the Tom. Mm. He doesn't say he's a Tom. He doesn't give him a a value judgment as to the character of the child. And this context is the dedication of the Bukhorim, the Israelite offspring, in terms of rescuing the Israelites from Egypt. The first three interchanges are from the Book of Shmos. The fourth round of question and answer appears in Devorim 6.20, when your children ask you tomorrow, what are these laws? And unlike the similar predictions of the child's questionings in Shmos, the context of the fourth question in Deuteronomy isn't about Pesach at all. It's all about the questioning the particulars of Israelite law. And, and that, that question is ascribed to the Chacham, in which the wise or sage child, what are these laws which God commanded us to do? And you shall say to your children, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Lord brought us out. Okay. Nowhere does it say he's a chacham. And it only comes to the mechilta that redacts the sacred text of the Bible and frames it as not only disparate times, but all in one time at the Seder table by four different characters. What has happened between the pshat and the midrash? What is driving the Midrash to reformulate it as taken by the Haggadah? The Haggadah is based on the Midrashic, not on the biblical. It's just citing biblical verses. The whole of Magid is citation of biblical verses for the purposes of the Haggadah or the Drush. What is this manipulation of the biblical text? Or what David Weiss-Halivli calls the mangling of the text. And for, for, for someone like uh, McGarrick, who is a Wissenschaft scholar, the answer is that we want to demonstrate that the oral interpretation or the rabbinic interpretation has validity, right? That's a very Wissenschaft answer, meaning in the Wissenschaft des Judentums, the, 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 the German school of interpretation of, uh, of the intellectual history of Judaism, um, there was this, this, this disconnect between the biblical text and the rabbinic text and scientific study of Judaism. And so for him, as a Wissenschaft, the rabbis are doing stuff intentionally to show the authority of the oral law. And so they have the right to manipulate the text to do that. I, that does not satisfy me in any way, shape, or form. And why would they then apply the Chacham versus the Rosha, the Rosha versus the Tam, and how do we explain them? How, you know, he doesn't go further to explain the specificity of the four sons and how they are related to the verses. Um, there's a wonderful website called thetorah.com in which you have this bunch of latter-day millennial scholars 
uh, out of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem who have been raised in the intellectual, critical study of the Torah using modern critical techniques of biblical scholarship, uh, modern critical techniques of archaeology, and yet they're from. They went to the Gush, they went to yeshivas, so they, they live a schizophrumkite kind of existence between going to work every day and doing the, using the tools of modern intellectual and scientific uh, um, analysis, what I call the sharper the blade that you are dissecting the sacred text, the deeper the wound, but also the deeper the secrets that it provides. And at the same time, they, want, they believe in the observance of traditional orthodoxy, which implies that the sacred text is non-mangleable, non-manipulable, non-negotiable in a very fundamental way. And so that website, thetorah.com, is a weekly meditation on that very struggle between modernity and tradition. And so uh, one of the uh, writers... Um, picks up this very idea and uh, in a very, very interesting way, we'll come and we'll critique it, of course, afterwards, and suggests that um, that the he, he points the question as to whether the generation of the Exodus was good or bad. Because the Exodus story uh, is highly structured, careful attention to detail. You can't miss the message. They did nothing to deserve being brought out of Egypt. And the Midrash says, the Malachim are complaining to God, saying, why are you taking them out? Why are you drowning the Egypt? My, my children are drowning in the Yam. What are they jumping and dancing about? Well, these are worshipping idols. These are worshipping idols. And it's only because of some ancient promise to the patriarchs that he would take them out. It wasn't that they were deserving. In fact, they resisted the redemption rather than helping bring it about. But he says, I've heard the moaning, right? You'll read it tonight in the Haggadah. I've heard the moaning of the Israelites because they're in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. And that's why I'm fulfilling, the, I'm fulfilling my part of the deal. And a similar idea of the undeserving nature of the Geula of Mitzrayim comes in Psalm 106. <laughs> They did not perceive your wonders. I'm thinking of the Holocaust, you know, it's just like so midrashic. They didn't perceive your wonders. They didn't remember all your kindnesses. And they rebelled at the sea. Very critical psalm. They rebelled at it when? By Mora. They were complaining. The waters were bitter. This and that. And you only saved them because of your name. Many, time and time again. JPS translation, I like that. Not many times. Time and time again, you, trans- you saved them. And they continue to rebel deliberately. And they were deliberate in their sin. Rebellion can a different... No, I mean, they complained. They didn't rebel. They didn't. I'm just reading the text of the psalmist a thousand years ago. You're saying that because you're reading whatever you're reading. I'm reading the way the psalmist is looking at the Exodus. So number, the, the first way is good or bad. 
That's clearly bad. The Gemara later, uh, like following yours, contrary to the plain meaning of that Psalm 106, that the Israelites in the wilderness were in fact wonderful people living on the highest spiritual plane. And there has been, since then, a Yeridat Hadorah. There's been a decline in the spirituality. But in the door of the Midbar, they were called a Dordea. They were called a generation that was on the highest level of understanding. An example, the Gemara, the Gemara tells us in Bava Basra that there was Rabbi Barachana was led into the desert by a Bedouin guide. And he comes across, across the Masei Midbar. He finds those who died before entering the land. They lay on their backs and were such giants that the Bedouin <coughs> rode beneath the knee of one of them. Since they had observed the mitzvahs meticulously, Rabbah attempted to cut the tzitzis of one of their garments in order to settle a rabbinic dispute, but his plan misfired. There's a Gomorrah in Baba Basra 73. That's telling you that they were so punctilious in their mitzvahs, going into, before they go in, during the desert, the Gomorrah tells us they were so punctilious that Rabbah Barachana, the famous and very colorful Amoira in Bavli, uh, wants to cut off one of their titsas to settle a dispute. In other words, don't run away with the idea just because they worship the golden calf, you're any bigger than them. This is to cut you down to size, this reading. And that's one of many examples in the Gemara of the playfulness of Chazal and the interpretive license they allowed themselves to go against the, 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 the Tehillim in 106, in which was highly critical so what happens now if I take that hermeneutical approach of Chazal to the four sons, what happens that allows me to misread the pshat in the Torah through the eyes of the Mechilta, the Rabbi Ishmael, so that we come out with these four sons? What happens? Because we have to assume, according to the Midrash, the Torah's text is perfect and free of any redundancy so that they translate the story into mitzvahs. So if we read the four times that the, that the children are mentioned in the Torah, this must refer to four separate children. Otherwise, it would have been redundant. What, are you, what is this avoider? What do you say to them? What do you say? Blah, blah, blah. Every time it becomes redundant. So what's the purpose? Oh, the object of my didaction is different. One is a Chacham, one is a Rosha, one of them. So the Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, around which much of our Haggadah is built, Tanaitic, very early Midrash, introduces characters. We are assigning characters to these four sons in order to make that Pshat non-redundant. Do you see how this differs from our first Wissenschaft scholar who says that the motive for Chazal was a polemical motive. The polemic was we have to demonstrate to the Karaites, to the Romans, to the early Christians, to the other sects, that the Pharisaic interpretation has value, has authority. That's a Wissenschaft response to my question. This is a literary response. It's saying almost psychologically, I can't talk to the same kid with the same answer. Oh, it's four different kids. Okay, so if we want to assume that response, 
he has this wonderful modern interpretation of who those four are. Again, I have a problem with it because it's a bit too away from the strict hermeneutics, but let's listen. He says, the Chochem is the halachic, the halachic reader. So what does he ask? I need the rules, the statutes, the ordinances. How do I follow the mitzvahs properly, right? Can I drink Perrier? My wife sent me a photo of some lipstick today. I sent it to the rabbi, and he says, as long as she doesn't drink it, which she, I wrote back to her, I said, oh boy, does he have your number? <laughs> right? So halachic readers want to know exactly how to perform each relevant mitzvah. A briska. Is it al dechefse? Is it the gavra? And there's the famous story of the, of the, uh, <clears throat> the nephew of the netziv. He goes to the first night to the, to the, the, the briskarov. And Reb Chaim is sitting there with a big clock on the Seder table and it weights and measures because he's got to weigh the amount of the kazayas and he's got to make it before chatzos and everyone's in a panic and they're rushing through and finally they make it and he says, the Makor Baruch says afterwards, and I would expect that after chatzos everyone would relax. Oh, no, no. They live in the anxiety of did they fulfill the mitzvah? Did they eat the right amount? The next night, he goes to the Nitziv. There's nothing. There's no clock. <laughs> they are sailing through the Haggadah. It's way past the Chatzos. <laughs> it's way past Chatzos. They're singing Smiras. He says, this is the difference. This is the difference between the Natsiv's Seder and, and the Briska Seder, right? So that first approach is, he's saying that is the Halachic reader, meaning he's asking for information. Is this on the Hefza? Is this on the Gavra? It's a question, a set of data that he needs because he is interpreting Alpi Chazal, what is really the open oral interpretation. The second reader is the theological reader. That's the second son. What does he ask? What does God want from me? What does he want from me on this night? Meaning, he's a spiritual seeker, and he's asking, what did the Abishta want from me on this night? Is this a reenactment? Is this a recreation? Or is this a drama that I go through, like a Greek drama in which there's a chorus, and I'm actually going through the original myth every time? What do these rituals and stories teach me about God? So they approach the Haggadah as a work reflecting not his will halachically, but his, his will as a, meaning his desire. What is behind the halacha is a desire, right? I want you to do this, my son. Why? Well, because that's what the halacha says you should do. Okay, but the rasha is not a rasha. He's an oppositional defiance, right? He's saying, no, no, I need a deeper reason. Give me what's behind your motive. You're asking me to do this, Dad. Why do I need to do it? Why is it good for me? The Haggadah tells about God and Israel's relationship with God. So I'm asking you to tell me why is about your desire. Meaning, what is my relationship with you? Is it alive still, 2,000 years later? As I'm going through this ritual, what is that relationship I have with the divine, the unknown? The next reader, it gets better. Tom, the Tom says mazos. So we have the 
the halachic reader, right? The obsessive halachic disorder. We have the theological reader who is the spiritualist, the cardiac Jew. Now comes the philological reader. What is the philological? What are the meanings of these words? What is the philological meaning? What does it mean when you say what you say? How does the Haggadah put it together? The semantic, the literary, the structure of the words. Why they put that together? What is it about the structure of the Haggadah that differs from the Mechilta? And what is it about that that differs from the four psukim upon which it's built? And how do these rituals evolve? Where did it come from? How did we start? Why has it come all this way down to this? So he approaches the text with an academic curiosity. That's the third one. The halachist, the spiritualist. Now we have the academic. What does the afikomon mean? Epikomon in Greek means I add something to the revelry. At the end of the revelry, there is a port, which is post-party. We have something after the party, upre-party. Epikomon, which is the in addition to the party, the revelry. Or some other Greek phrase. Did the wise son really ask, like the wicked son, what did the command God command you? And you respond to the wicked son because you took yourself out, because you said you. Well, so did the wise one said that. The wise one asked, said Lochem, why, why are you spitting between the two? Or could it have said us? The Septuagint translates it as us, not you. The biblical text that it says, what is this meaning to you? In the Septuagint, which is one of the earliest witnesses to what the original text may have said or not, says us. What form of literature are we reading? Is it poetry, prose, a collage, or what? That's the third one. And the fourth is the political reader. Politics is the history of power. Who has the power? The father, the sons, the, the, the collective rabbinic weight of tradition on my shoulders that bears me down. Who? This is the politics of power. That is, the political reader is saying, how can participating in this Haggadah make me a more ethical person? And as you know, two years ago, there was a new Haggadah put out by a bunch of people that talked about the Haggadah cleansed of all its, you know, problematic chapters. Who are the slaves and the persecuted today? Why has the black community used the Exodus as a theology framing their need to be free of oppression? And what can we do about to bring their liberation? That includes feminists and people who have been abused. So I thought that was a very interesting reading. But what I want to end up with is um, what do we think as we struggle today uh, about this switch? Five minutes. So, so, how do we how do we interpret? I'm going to open that up to you. Uh, Having gone on this trajectory of, um, and this is, applies to everything we do, this is just charismatically tonight, the question that I'm posing as to, you have this sacred text, the Bible, then you have this revolution called the Pharisaic revolution, which must have been considered reform 
by the Sadducees and the, and, and the people in Jerusalem. And then you have the whole development of the Haggadah and its central place in Jewish ritual all the way down to a post-Holocaust reading in which we find ourselves. And so to me, uh, the Hasidic masters have said that you need to ask yourself the four sons within you. What are the four aspects of your personality uh, that play the role in the questioning? If the Torah is a spiritual roadmap, then the oral law and its tradition to very much this postmodern times represents every generation's struggle with that question of how do I deal with a tradition that's weighted down upon me in the modern times, whether it's the first century or the fifth century of Bavli or the medieval period or the postmodern period, as to these four characters. Who are those four characters in your lives and how do they work together? Because the four sons are all sitting at the same table. The Lubavitcher ever said there was a fifth son, correct? The one who didn't, who didn't make come. it. The one who didn't make yeah. it, but he's still a son and he's still part of the family. Uh, there is a fifth coast that the Radzinas have yeah. that they make a bracha on for the Mashiach. Whatever these rituals mean to you, what the, 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 the absolute need tonight as you go through the ritual itself is not to see it as a historical text or a philological text or <clears throat> a political text, that too. But if this is a spiritual roadmap, the question is, how do I keep alive these four themes that the rabbis have kind of mangled out of the literary text of the Bible into these four characters? And <clears throat> what would I make of these four characters in my own self? The, the people I read to give me guidance are those psychological and character new historicists who read, for instance, La Havdil Shakespeare. And if I'm looking at a Shakespeare play, I'm looking at the characters of the play so that I can make sense, because Shakespeare is the greatest psychologist we've ever had, um, I want to make sense of those characters. So if I'm looking at Lear and his daughters, I want to look at the relationship with King Lear and his daughter, who just loves him to death and he doesn't get it, right? And in that relationship, if the father and the sons or the divine and the sons, and we are the sons of the divine, what does that, the architecture of that play inform me about the deep nature of character and relationships and how I can interpret that to see myself in Lear, to see the betrayal, to see my deceit, to see my love and inability to love in that character. That's what I've used to help me apply those kind of tools to the Haggadah. We should all be able to make sense of it and struggle with it and see ourselves in this dramatic play tonight. Thank you.